you can say what the perfect resuscitation should be. I've been in hundreds of resuscitations. I've been in hundreds of simulations of resuscitations. I've never seen a perfect resuscitation. It doesn't exist because it's an emergent phenomenon. There's no one way to do it. It's unpredictable. It's intractable. It's emergent. It's complex. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Shannon McNamara. Shannon is an emergency physician and simulation educator working in New York City, and she describes herself as interested in applying the science of complex systems to how we can learn and even thrive in challenging circumstances. You can read her newsletter, which is called Plus Delta, at www.getreview.co slash profile slash Shannon O'Mac. Now that's G-E-T-R-E-V-U-E dot C-O slash profile slash S-H-A-N-N-O-N-O-M-A-C. Now, as you'll see nearly immediately in this episode, Shannon is a brilliantly deep thinker, and we cover a ton of interesting ground around things like system dynamics, resiliency engineering, the flocking behavior of birds, and the role of culture in responding to crisis. Before we get started, though, I have a favor to ask of you. If you like what you're hearing with the Emergency Mind podcast, I would love your help getting the word out and growing our community. Can you think of one person that would benefit from hearing this podcast and then send it to them, please? If you have any other ideas on growing the community, if you want to talk more about complexity, or honestly, if you want to talk about anything else emergency related, you can always reach me at dan at emergencymind.com. Okay, that said, let's jump into this really awesome episode about complexity. I hope you enjoy. All right, Shannon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am really excited to sit down and talk with you about this. I was totally impressed by what you presented at the High Performance Resuscitations Teams Conference not so long ago and have been a longtime follower of you on Twitter, and I'm very excited to dig in. So thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to continue the conversation. So we've talked several times on the podcast over our various episodes about the idea of emergencies as complex systems, but we've often talked about it in passing. And I'm really excited to dig down into that today and really get into it, both in terms of the emergency and the team and the interplay between those actions. But I wonder if we can start at sort of a, and geez, I don't even know if this exists, but like at a complexity 101 level, that seems almost strange to say that that way. For folks that are kind of new to this concept, like what is complexity and what are complex systems? Yeah, absolutely. So brief bit of background. I found complexity through the world of simulation and patient safety. And in my academic life, I felt like I was always like hopping to the next lily pad, like, okay, simulation's great. Mastery learning's great. How do we do this better? Okay. In situ simulation's great. How does that work? Clinical debriefing's great. How does that work? Human factors and optimizing resuscitation is really cool. How does that work? And I found my way to the world of resilience engineering, which is fundamentally about applying complexity theory to high-risk, high-uncertainty industries for the optimizing of safety and performance, which is a big mouthful. And resilience engineering, I think we all hear resilience and want to throw up. Right. Um, it's kind of lost all meaning as a word, but there's this really interesting body of safety science around accident investigation and trying to optimize these systems for performance while integrating complexity theory. So what is complexity? Why does it matter? I've struggled with trying to put this into really simple terms. And I think a lot of people do. I haven't found an amazing explanation. The key features are, you know, you're dealing with complexity when you're dealing with something that has lots of interdependent parts 
at least three interdependent parts, that the outcomes are uncertain. You cannot predict the exact behavior of how this entity will behave. You see, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. It's decentralized. So of these interdependent parts, there's no central control mechanism. The interactions are nonlinear and emergent. That emergence was a really brain-breaking part for me. Emergence is a way of talking about why things happen. And I think when we like dig down in our brain, in our neurons, we often start off believing things happen like in the way of classical physics. Like I drop something, it falls. That's gravity. Newton's laws of physics. They're kind of intuitive. You kick a ball, it rolls. Those types of interactions are kind of the world of linear physics. And those things are real. And that's how a lot of mechanical systems work and complicated mechanical systems work. But that's not complexity and emergence. Emergence is when we look at natural systems. So often uh, the example of a bird flock is used. The flock of birds is an emergent property of the flocking behavior is an emergent property of a group of birds. So each little bird behaves in such a way, interacting with all the other little birds to create a flock. So like if you see a video of a starling murmuration with these thousands of birds making these amazing patterns in the sky, that pattern, that flock, that is an emergent property where it's created by the many nonlinear interactions of all those little parts. The emergency department is actually a classic example that resilience engineering folks love to go to about what a complex adaptive system looks like, like in an industrial setting. The example I was reading was they were saying, you know, a post office is usually not a complex system. It's very predictable. It's relatively linear. I'm sure there's elements of complexity there, but it's, it's pretty straightforward. Whereas an emergency department, there's many interdependent parts like it or not, it's pretty decentralized. No one person is in charge of everything. It's unpredictable. It's intractable. No one person can know in the moment everything that's happening. We can try, but we can never fully get there in the moment because there's so much going on. And it's emergent. So these interactions of all these little different parts together are bouncing off each other in a decentralized way to create an outcome. The sum of the parts is greater than the whole. Yeah. Sounds very, very familiar to anybody that works in an emergency department, the complexity and the interactions and the decentralized nature of it. I think it's worth putting up sort of a, a classical distinction here between like simple, complicated and complex, because that was one of yeah. the first things that it took me to sort of really get my hands deep into complexity theory. So a, a simple system is a system that has relatively few parts that interact in relatively predictable ways. And you can sort of understand and model the entirety of the system in one sense or another. A complicated system has a bunch of parts that interact like a very large number of parts that interact in relatively predictable ways. And with enough sort of computing power, you can generally deterministically model the system. So an engine is a typical example of this, right? Mm -hmm. It has lots of moving parts. Those parts interact together in multiple ways, but you can sort of model the entirety of an engine. And then we get to what you were describing, which is complexity and complex systems which have not necessarily a lot of parts, but really complicated interactions between the parts and a rich interaction set that results in these emergent decentralized properties. Yes. Am I reading all that right? Okay. Absolutely. That's a great summary. So when we think about what is a complex system, like an organism is a complex system. So the human body is a complex system. A city is a complex system. A network, like a transportation network of roads or trains or buses or a, a social network, an ecosystem they just kind of exist as complex systems. I think it really resonated with me when I was reading about this theory because it 
explain the world I was in. I think as an emergency physician, you're constantly immersed in complexity. And there's not a lot of people talking about what that is and how it works. And so when I read this stuff, I was like, yes, this is what I'm dealing with. How do I get better? Because I really care about doing a great job at three in the morning in an absolute utter hot mess of an ER. And I'm struggling to find things that are relevant to that situation. And I started reading resilience engineering and complexity theory. And I was like, oh, this is the stuff. And conveniently, you know, it's always people stuff. So Mary Patterson is this pediatric emergency physician who does amazing work on in-situ simulation. And I would read her papers and I just copy them, like copy the methods or just do what she said. Like, oh, this, these methods are great. I'm just going to set up a program doing that. And it worked amazingly well. And I loved it. You know, I met her and started working with her through the academic sim world. She collaborated a bunch with Robert Wares, Bob Wares, who is an emergency physician also from Florida who passed away a few years ago, but who is like one of the preeminent resilience engineering and healthcare thinkers and writes a lot about, you know, that lived experience of working in an emergency department. And his writing is so wonderful because it's so affirming of our experience. And it adds this scientific theory to explain why things are so hard. And then he collaborated with folks like Eric Holnagel and Sidney Decker and like all these, these European safety scientists who are frustrated that no one in American healthcare ever listens to them, <laughs> but who have really cool ideas to fully get there. It's that lived experience of emergency medicine. You already know what complexity is. It's just sure. adding language to what we already know. So I want to throw out a theory here and see what you think about it, because it's something I've been chewing on for a while that sort of intersects a lot of these pieces. And my theory is this, every emergency is a complex system. How does that sound? And I'm, I'm going to be bold and say every there on purpose. I, I've been trying to come up with examples of things that are emergencies really. And when I think about emergencies, I tend to use these characteristics, right? So it's full of uncertainty. There's high pressure relative to your resources. There's significant impact of decision-making and often, in fact, probably always, but I'm going to say often, cause I'm not as sure about this one. It has liminality to it. Meaning once you mm -hmm. enter into it, you can't easily extricate yourself or mm -hmm. what's happening from it. My fifth component is that emergencies are complex systems. That's a really interesting theory. It makes sense. I'm like, I'm hesitating to say absolutely yes, because sure. I am definitively not an expert. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see myself as kind of a translator. Like I read the theory and then I try to turn it into stories that make sense, but I don't create the theory. And so the idea that I've had recently is that resuscitation is an emergent phenomenon. And that Ooh, okay. I feel really confident about. All right. So let's table my theory for a minute. We'll come back to it. Although, although an issue challenge, anybody listening to this, like, I would love to hear what you think about that. Emergencies yes. are complex systems. And if you have examples for or against, please send them to me at dan at emergencymind.com. It is definitively established that the emergency department is a complex adaptive system. hundred percent. Mm -hmm. That's how it functions. Every emergency, probably. I think it's when we get into like, which elements of the emergency department are simple, complicated, complex. It's like, I don't know. Right. Well, right. Cause there's a, there's a fractal nature to this, right. Which is that yes. complex systems can have simple or complicated or even complex parts as part yes. of the systems. Right. Yes. And that's where it gets like wonderfully beautiful and sticky and kind of interesting and rich. And there certainly are simple things within emergencies. There are simple things within lots of complex systems, but my theory is that all emergencies are complex systems or, or I guess maybe all emergencies involve complexity. I don't know. I'll have to. I'll have all to emergencies are complex. I think all emergencies yeah. are complex. That sounds right. Well, the human body is a complex system. The emergency sure. department is a complex system. So it sounds like all emergencies are complex. I think so. 
All right, let's table that for a minute and sort of yeah. we'll, maybe we'll circle back to that uh, <laughs> either in this conversation or, or in future ones. But let's go back to something you said a second ago, which is that resuscitation is an emergent phenomenon. What does that mean? So I love to show the video of the bird flock and say, this is how things work. And I think if you compare it in your head to like imagining like the game of mousetrap or an OK Go video or something where it's like a really complicated machine when you watch like a ball go through a system and it, like, it's predictable. And then, you know, you look at your linear mechanical complicated system that's predictable and determinable. And then you look at your complex emergent phenomenon of your flock of birds, which is a bunch of little birds interacting to create something bigger than themselves and unpredictable. Resuscitation is a complex phenomenon that is the thing that's greater than the sum of the parts. It's that intangible liminality of saving someone's life. Resuscitation is fundamentally someone comes into you If you do nothing, they will probably die, but you do something and they live. The space between nothing and something is some kind of magic that's very difficult to pin down. Like you can say what it should be. Like you can say what the perfect resuscitation should be. I've been in hundreds of resuscitations. I've been in hundreds of simulations of resuscitations. I've never seen a perfect resuscitation. It doesn't exist because it's an emergent phenomenon. There's no one way to do it. It's unpredictable. It's intractable. It's emergent. It's complex. So are you saying then that, because you can name the pieces of the team, right? Mm -hmm. You can say you're the trauma expert. I'm the ER expert. There's a respiratory therapist. There's a ventilator. There's a patient. There's a monitor. I can name the system. I can name the components, the elements of the system. I can name often the interactions between certain elements, but maybe not always, but some of them, right? I can say, okay, there's communication back and forth between the trauma team leader and the airway expert. And Mm -hmm. there's communication between the respiratory therapist and the pharmacist or whatever sort of Mm -hmm. dyads we want to draw from that. And then I can name the purpose of the system, which is to save the patient's life in a way that is safe for the people engaging in the resuscitation and in some sense, mindful of resource utilization for future resuscitations, Mm -hmm. right? Or however you want to say that. So I can name the elements, the interactions and the purpose. And what you're saying is almost another layer on top of that, which is that the way all of these pieces work together, and it's funny that we're sort of running into the edges of words here because it's hard Mm -hmm. to describe this thing. The way Mm -hmm. that these components and interactions and purpose functions together, that is really resuscitation. Yes. It's the fact that the person leaves the room alive, maybe. Right. Because what if they don't leave the room alive, which does happen even when you do a really high performance resuscitation? I think that's something that I've struggled with emotionally. I think complexity helped me deal with that. So I was thinking about this with how do I debrief a resuscitation? I started debriefing all my codes, all my cardiac arrest cases. And in the ER, usually people come in from EMS in cardiac arrest. They don't and we don't get them back. That's the most likely outcome in a cardiac arrest case is that the person's going to die. But sometimes they live. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it matters, but it it's not a one-to-one with how well the team performs and what happens to the patient. They're related, but they're not fully predictable. And what I noticed when I was debriefing is that people were thinking about the act of doing the resuscitation as if it was a machine and thinking about their role very linearly. So they'd say, well, I gave the epinephrine one minute too late. So the patient died or we had, you know, it was this, there was this one-to-one linkage. They were imagining that there was a very close linkage with the one thing that they did and what happened to the patient. And as someone who'd been doing it for a long time, I think attendings will look back and say, oh, well, yes, all of our interactions together were somewhat related to this outcome, but one person's actions alone did not cause this outcome. 
and shifting to thinking about complexity of when I was debriefing them, like, how do I debrief this? Like my team just did an amazing job. The patient died. I know some of the people on this team are blaming themselves because they think it's their fault. The patient died. I know it's not their fault. This person collapsed outside the hospital. They're 80 years old. Like this was never going to work. They did an amazing job just in case it did. So how do I debrief this? And thinking about complexity, I started, well, I wasn't even thinking about complexity, honestly. I was just trying to make it make sense. So I started debriefing on asking what happened and talking about what happened and really just talking about how things worked and noticing what people did and highlighting great behaviors. And the act of talking about how it worked, like, what is your name? What is your role? What is your job? What was your perspective on this case? And kind of gathering those all together. That was an effective performance improvement conversation. We didn't have to say, oh, the plus delta type, like what went well, what didn't go so well. Just having a conversation of what happened improved our performance. And I noticed this like distinctly over time. If I debriefed a lot with a group, whether it's Sam or Recess, it worked. And that was because that's a, like, it's a strategy for dealing with complexity. Right. Like this is, this is rich and worthwhile. So you just said just the act of debriefing every at bat, for lack of a better way to say it, every time we go up against a critical case, just the act of debriefing it improved your team's performance over time. And specifically debriefing it, not in saying, what could we do better? I think those conversations are valuable, but when a patient just died and I'm worried that like the new medical assistant who was doing compressions is worried that their compressions were good enough and that's why this person died. We're not in a place where we can have that kind of conversation where we can say, how can we do better? Because mm. it's too emotionally damaging because people are seeing it as linear. They're like, my behavior caused this outcome. When in reality, it's, oh, the, so it's the whole thing. Okay. So the conver- if we just have a conversation of what happened in this resuscitation, where I tell people what I see happening, eight-year-old patient out of hospital, cardiac arrest, ACLS by EMS, we placed an airway, we did CPR, we gave epi, we did an ultrasound, there was no cardiac activity, this was not salvageable, we stopped. And then, okay, what's your name? What's your role? I saw you doing CPR, how did that go? Not did, how could we do it better? Not what went wrong, just what happened? And that simple conversation of what happened, how does this work? That's it. That improved performance because in complexity, one of the key elements is that no one knows what's going on. No one knows everything that's going on, right? Exactly. No one knows everything that's going on. Everyone knows a part of it, but no one knows everything. So if we can just focus on learning more about what's going on and how things work, then we will improve. All right. That's so interesting and kind of mind-blowingly awesome. (laughs) So yeah, like we've talked a lot in the Emergency Mind Project about the idea of harnessing the wisdom of the room within the moment of the crisis, right? We, One of our core tenants is the room is smarter than you are, no matter how smart you are, right? And you need to gather the different viewpoints of everybody together. And we talk a lot about how to do that and the logistics and tactics of that. But the underlying philosophy is the room is smarter than you are. I've actually never thought about it the way that you're describing right now, which is that one of the most important things we can do coming out of crisis as we think about that swing in the arc from perform to recover and evolve is to make sure on the other end of it, people on the team have a chance to see a broader multidimensional space of what actually happened. We also talk a lot about this distance between performance and outcome, right? Oh, yeah. But I've never thought about it in the way that you're describing, which is that we have a tendency, and maybe this is Kahneman's like what you see is all there is cognitive bias, but we have a tendency to believe that we have more control over a situation than we do, that the world revolves a little bit more around us 
than it probably does. And so we're, we're tempted to ascribe more power to our actions than there probably is. Yes. I see this a lot. I've spent pandemic at home with two small children and small children, you know, as pediatricians say, or small children are not uh, little adults, but I firmly believe that adults are big children. I feel like we're like Russian dolls with like little three-year-olds inside of us. So spending time with small children teaches me a lot. And it feels really good, like deep in our core to feel like we know something and we're certain about it and we have control over it. That feels so good. Like primordial brains love it. And when we're dealing with complexity, we're dealing with uncertainty and we're not in control. And that is very scary. So it can take a lot of fortitude to kind of look at the situation as it exists and realize what you do have control over. You have control over some things, you know, some things, but to face the uncertainty and the things that you can't control, just accept it. And to accept, you know, I, the room is smarter than me. I don't know everything that's going on. So I need to ask them. And so in a way you're almost saying that like, it's sort of a maladaptive mechanism, but it's easier for me to believe that I screwed something up than it is for me to process the complexity of the system that I'm seeing. I think so. One of my curiosities is how, you know, there's a big gap between the literature that's out there about complex systems. Like we've known about complex systems for a while. Mm -hmm. They've been talking about this stuff since like the fifties. This is not new. There's an amazing complexity lecture from the 90s from this guy, Russ Acoff. He was a professor at Wharton in the business school. And he did this lecture, you can find it on YouTube, called From Mechanistic Thinking to Systems Thinking. And it's this like arc of human history and like how we got, now we're dealing with the age of complexity and what do we do with that? And that's like, this is not new, but we're not talking about it and we're not integrating it into our practice. When I think about that gap, why is there a gap between what we know academically about complexity and what we use about complexity? I think there's a psychology piece there where it's scary. Like the degree of uncertainty and lack of control in the world is scary. And so it's sometimes easier to stay in the land of mechanical certainty and control because it feels good which it does. A tactical question for you. So when you're doing this kind of a debrief, whether after a cardiac arrest or after a SIM case that you're running and mm-hmm. your your goal, at least implicitly, is to say, okay, I want everybody to get a sense of the different viewpoints of the room and to build a more complete model of what happened. How explicit are you about that? Do you introduce it by saying, okay, we're going to debrief in this structure and here's why? Or how do you set that up? Like if I want to steal this model from you and use it on my shift tonight, like what's mm-hmm. what's your recipe for setting that up? Yeah. So that would be a pre-brief. And there's a lot of great different perspectives on how to do a good pre-brief to set the stage for a debrief. And some key elements that I'll include, my debriefs are always optional. This is not mandatory. If you need to go take care of a patient or you just need to go take a minute, this is optional. This is not a space for blame. We're here to learn together. This is a learning space. And what else do I say? Short. It's got to be short. Those are the big ones. And then I'll talk about, like, I want to talk about what happened. And I found that in simulations, I'll often have someone in the group talk about what happened. In a clinical debrief, I'll usually talk about what happened because I'm usually in a role where I can see more of the full picture. Like when we're a proceduralist, like if we're doing a procedure, we get a lot of task blindness and we can't really see the big picture um, just because how much cognitive bandwidth we have. So I think it helps to have someone who's in a team leader role summarize what happened. Just like very this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And then, you know, there's a ton of literature around, you know, how do you do a debrief and there's no one right way to do it. And what I've found that has worked for me is to, in a very emotionally challenging one. So like say someone died or like it's a hard airway or something to specifically point out 
positive behaviors that I noticed from different people. So I noticed that there was closed loop communication between these two people about the dosing for the airway medicines. I noticed that the airway person prepared multiple different different types of equipment and talked about their plan beforehand. I noticed that someone spoke up when they noticed the oxygen sats were low and just specifically say what all the good things were and like name them and describe them. And I'll do that in a sit in an insight to sim. Like if we're doing sim in the recess bay with the team or in an emergency resuscitation. And what I would find is that I would see those behaviors again, like what you pay attention to grows. Sure. And if you can be really explicit about naming what was awesome, you can see more of it. We did a paper about how to debrief from a mindset incorporating complexity. And some other things we talked about were, you know, deciding what to debrief, debriefing everything instead of things that go wrong or things that go well, just pick something and debrief all of them. So like airways are amazing if you debrief every airway and the goal not to be saying what went well, what didn't go well, but how do airways work here? How do we manage airways? How is this process functioning? And recognizing that that process is not static and will change constantly over time. And then asking, since this process is going to be constantly changing over time, how are we adapting to uncertain circumstances? So a big part of complexity is dealing with trade-offs. You know, we have the limitations of resources and constant change. And if you work in an ER and you said, what are two constants? Limited resources, constant change. Pretty standard. So true. Limited those resources, things, constant change. Yeah. Those things are certain. Yeah. So what do we do with that? We make trade-offs. So Holnagel has this theory of the efficiency thoroughness trade-off principle, where when we're in that situation, we are constantly making trade-offs over whether we're prioritizing efficiency or thoroughness. So efficiency, like time to do or thoroughness, time to think. And emergency physicians and folks that work in the ER, we are amazing at trade-offs. The art of emergency medicine is crushing it at trade-offs. And so making that art explicit by debriefing about it. So not saying, why don't we go along with the plan, but saying, how did our team adapt to these limited resources, changing circumstances to make this work? How did we make it work? Because emergency departments are full of magic. They're full of people making things work under the most oppressive circumstances with extremely limited resources, with awful change. Like let's throw in some monkey pox for good measure. Like, come on people, this is getting ridiculous. And people that work in the ER are amazing at this, but we don't talk about it because the larger brain of the medical world is stuck in mechanistic thinking and struggles to accept that adaptivity, making it work, performance variability, that is the magic making it all work. And if we don't talk about it explicitly, we're not going to get better at it. Wow. That is so rich. So you're saying to make the implicit stuff that we do explicit, really just by opening the conversation to talk about it in some way, yes. right? So, so we run a critical case and just to say, Hey, um, there's a lot of stuff that was hidden in there. There's a lot of complex pieces in that. Let's just talk about that. How did we adapt to like almost at a metacognitive level, not how did you get this airway, but how did you adapt to the limited resources you had here? Like what was unexpected? How did you make it work? What surprised you? That's actually, I, I, that's a question I've been asking folks when I take sign out from another attending is what surprised you today? What was unexpected mm. in, and what did you learn from it? That was something that was an idea passed to me by, uh, by Annie Duke, the sort of decision-making guru and an amazing thinker about that. Uh, that's a great idea. Gave, right. Who gave that advice about like, in her words, like stop thinking about M&Ms only about what went wrong and instead be like, what surprised you? Where did the universe deviate from your model of the universe? And that's like yeah. a point to really focus on. 
I think that's amazing. I've learned a ton from my fellow attendings from just asking that ultra simple question, like what totally baffled you today? There's some questions that are like Jedi mind trick questions that just like open things up to another world. And I think what surprised you is a really great one. I'm going to sort of uh, synthesize this a little bit, which is that we've talked about how complex systems are large multi-part things with complicated interactions. And one of the properties of them is that they're so full of uncertainty and interactions that basically no one viewpoint can actually capture everything that's happening to them or in them. In the moment, correct. In the moment, excuse me. You're right. Not, Not afterwards, but in the moment, right? And so as a result of that, one of our strengths and one of our tools for handling complexity around the point of emergency is after the emergency has passed to debrief simply by collecting multiple points of view on what happened. Non-judgmentally, non-focused on improvement, just to say, hey, we know these things are hard to wrap your hands around in the middle of it. So let's like deconstruct and see what happened. Mm -hmm. And then specifically talking about what happened, but also what surprised you and how did you adapt to make things work? Because that's getting at the the other tools in our toolkit, which is how do we respond to uncertainty and changing environments? Yes. Okay. A lot to think about here. This is amazing. For a second, I want to sort of blow up our scale a little bit, right? Because we, we talked sure. about all of this has been so far within the context of one rather small resuscitation team working on one patient. And I think another challenge that we face a lot, either in emergencies, emergency departments, or in the larger framework of mission critical teams that we exist under, right? Is this sense of how does the whole system respond to complexity? And I'm, I'm going to leave that completely open-ended, which is like all of this stuff that we're talking about, how does this apply to an entire department and maybe on an operations level as compared to like a single team working on a single patient? That is a really amazing question that I don't fully have the answer to. I'll, I'll give two answers. Uh, one optimistic and one more challenging. So I think optimistically, I was listening to the episode with Brian Yoon about operations. And he was talking about that element of, you know, the way he talked about operations really incorporated ideas about complexity. You know, how are we interfacing with all these different departments? How are we trying to accomplish our goal of moving the patient through respecting their wishes, taking care of their challenges? And how do we set everything up to run as well as it can, recognizing that things are really complex? And I think on an operations level, those are the kinds of tricky questions that you can answer. My favorite work in simulation is around translational simulation. So Victoria Brazel does a ton of great work on this where you do a simulation in your clinical setting and your goal is both diagnostic and therapeutic is to learn how the system works. So you may have a map of how the system's supposed to work, but when you actually do the simulation and you debrief and you say, Hey, how does this actually work? You can learn so much. And then in your, you know, prepare, perform, recover, evolve, that's your recover, evolve, prepare side Mm -hmm. of let's debrief this. Let's iterate our processes to work a little bit better. Let's try to prepare for the next thing. And then let's keep that cycle going. That said, in reality, the reality is I'm not working in a hospital right now because I tried to do that work at multiple different large academic centers and they didn't want me to do it. And I think that's something that is really breaking my brain. So like I found this amazing scientist, you know, think academic wise, I was a simulation director I had a fancy job. I'd found really cool science. I'm like reading Mary Patterson and working with her and thinking, wow, this stuff is so cool. Reading Vic Brazel, working with her, I think, wow, this is so cool. 
reading all this really cool complexity work, talking to like European air traffic controllers and human factor scientists. I'm like, this science is awesome. Let's do this people. And I showed up at my fancy academic hospital and I was like, great news. I've got awesome science about how we can do better because our ER is a hot mess of suffering for everyone. The patients are miserable. The staff are miserable. I have this great science. We can do simulations in the ER. We can learn, we'll learn together. We can learn as an organization. We can iterate. We can do all these things. And the reaction from the level beyond the clinical ops people, like the departmental clinical ops people are like, this is awesome. And then their bosses and up were like, Hey, no, we don't like that. That's been really hard. Um, and I think, I don't know why, because they won't exactly tell me, but I think that the way hospitals function right now in the U S they're extremely complex and the leadership of most of, or the ones I've encountered, you know, I don't want to speak for everyone, but the leadership are often very uncomfortable with uncertainty, complexity, lack of control, and they focus more on the mechanistic side of things. So what can we control? What, and the way they make financial trade-offs is not transparent. And that is, I'm not a finance expert. I don't have a lot. I, I couldn't tell you all the details, but there was a paper that came out in the last year, I think, in the New England Journal with tons of chairs of emergency departments saying the problem with the emergency department is the hospital financing system. Like we are stuck. This is bad. This is very bad. This is not working. And we've hit this wall that I don't know how to solve beyond the level of the resuscitation team. And I kind of shifted my focus back to the resuscitation team because that's the area I could control. You know, ultimately I burned out. I mean, between COVID and loss of deaths and a hospital system who didn't want to improve from my perspective, I just had to take a break and step and walk away. I'm currently working in urgent care, which mm -hmm. is not necessarily a complex system, <laughs> but which is, okay. <laughs> there, it, it's, it's got elements, it's elements there. People, human bodies are complex and that's interesting. Um, but it's doesn't have that same liminality of the emergency department and it's, right. it's it's different. And that's, that's an internal struggle that I'm, I have not figured out how to fully recover from. I think I'm in a, in a transition place of like trying to get healthy and have small children who are a little more independent and trying to be a full person. But I realized I burned out in the way of like, I could go do a shift in an ER. I could physically do it. But if I keep doing that, I know it's going to eventually kill me. Like mm. it's, physically, emotionally, intellectually, so difficult to work in that complexity without the support to thrive in that level of complexity. And I think that tension is something that a lot of people are feeling where we intuitively know strategies that could make things better and they aren't happening. That I think that's a really rich point for us to learn from, but the, you know, for getting by with this very difficult reality we're living in, recognizing that emergency practitioners know this stuff and there is science and there is a rich academic history to support that experience that we're having of, you know, trying to thrive in these complex systems and not necessarily having the full organizational and institutional support to get there. Thank you for sharing that. It's in some ways so much easier to talk about the way that components of a system function together than it is to acknowledge the fact that we are human beings and we have limits and strengths and weaknesses and have to take care of ourselves as we're doing this work. There's a ton of strength in, in you saying that, and I really appreciate you sharing that. 
Thank you. For a long time, I thought about, I mean, while I was doing all the simulation complexity work, one of the reasons I loved it is because it felt really good. Mm-hmm. Like it felt like doing good work and saving lives and doing cool science and working with people that I like. Debriefing in situ situa- simulations with our clinical staff is so fun. Asking like, hey, respiratory, tell me all your secrets. And they're like, yes, <laughs> here are all my tricks. I'm like, I love this. I learned so much cool stuff. I loved it. And we got stuck in the sim version, you know, and it, I think I tried to think, how can I survive in this system for so long? And I really struggled in a lot of different ways. And I love emergency medicine, but finally recognizing like, and COVID pushed me over where ultimately I was pregnant when COVID started and I had been a med student in H1N1. And I knew like we had multiple patients who were in the ICU, pregnant patients who were in the ICU for six months. I was like, I'm sorry, guys, I got to go. Like, (laughs) we know nothing about this virus. I don't, I can't, no, sorry, I'm out. Um, And I switched to telemed and, you know, that has evolved into urgent care. But realizing the way the system currently works, I can't survive in it. And it's okay to walk away, which is really hard. So, you know, just shout out to all the folks trying to survive in this big mess that we're all in. It's a big mess and it's really hard. And there's many different paths, but I think being honest about the path that I'm on, hopefully will be helpful to folks that are struggling with similar challenges. Absolutely. It will. And I don't think this is at all, uh, even captures sort of a part of what you're describing, but some of it, essentially we're talking about culture, right? We're talking about changing the culture of a space and being part of building the culture that we want to see within the groups of people that function in emergencies. And I think we've come a significant way from where we were even you know, when I was starting out from this, but we have a ton of space and room to go as we develop a culture that values complexity, uncertainty, change, and the pursuit of excellence in those fields. Yes. Right. You said it really elegantly uh, a couple of minutes back talking about how like adapting to uncertain circumstances is the superpower of emergency medicine. Yes. And I think often we're stuck in this space where we wish it was a simple system and pretend it's a simple system and sort of like push away from the complexity of it rather than embracing that chaos, right? Like, you know, like embrace the suck essentially and be like, I am going to be excellent at this. I'm going to be excellent in chaos and excellent in uncertainty. And I'm going to create an individual, a team and a structural culture that reflects my desire for pursuit of excellence, which yes. like honestly maybe gets to sort of like some of the work by uh, Dweck and the growth mindset that yeah. we don't think there's a fixed thing. We're a growth pattern and we welcome challenge and change, not just with lip service to it, but actually by creating the situations that welcomes adaptability and seeks excellence and change. Yeah, Absolutely. I think part of my response to that is to think about the idea of like leave no trace camping, right? Where, Mm. you know, you go into a space and you leave it better than if, or at the worst, at least equal to how you found it. And Mm -hmm. I try to make that sort of my threshold as I go through a shift, even a really challenging shift in the setting of culture and structure and priorities that aren't the way that I want it to be, which is, can I leave this small group of people that I've touched better than how I found them. There's a thing that you talked about within your lecture at the High Performance Resuscitations Team Conference about the local area effect of starlings. In a way that relates to that, can you jump us back yeah. into that yeah. for a second? Yeah. So I went on a deep nerd dive for how starling murmurations work, and it's very cool science. So 
this woman studied it in the seventies with fish. She did like these really intense experiments with schooling and flocking, like schooling fish and flocking birds, similar behavior. So she did really intensive studies of fish and tanks and how they swam together and how it worked. And she determined that they pay attention to their like six or seven closest neighbors and they follow three simple rules. They try to stay close together, but not so close that they bump into each other. So that middle ground of proximity, and they try to generally go in the same direction. So close together, not too close, same direction. That's it. And each individual being is only paying attention to like its six or seven closest neighbors because it can't see the whole thing. They can just see, you know, the, the ones kind of, if you imagine it like a ball, like the ones around it and they all kind of coordinate. Each one is coordinating with its seven neighbors, but then each other one's coordinating with its, you know, six or seven neighbors. So, and then this, this computer programmer in the eighties decided to create a program to make realistic looking bird flocks or fish schools in animated movies when they were developing animated movies. So he took her research. So Evelyn Shaw did, she was like a cool scientist lady. This guy, Craig Reynolds was a computer programmer and he took her work and he made little computer program where he made, he called them boids. So a bird-like objects. So he made a boid and he programmed each little dot to do those three things. Stay close to your neighbors, not too close that you bump into them, but kind of close and go in the same general direction. That's like simple, more simple physics. So he programmed each one to do that. And then he threw a thousand of them in a little program together. And sure enough, they look like a bird flock Hmm. and like, ta-da, like tons of movies use this technology to make realistic looking flocks. So that's like a very nerdy rabbit hole. But what I think what the take home is and what my take home is that fractal power of the system. So you take seven birds and they're doing this together. But what if you take thousands of birds and they all do the same thing? Then you get this amazing murmuration. And it's when I'm, you know, adrift in a sea of despair at how the world is insane. If I can focus on my little locus of control, this, you know, the people around me, my team, and if I can act with respect and curiosity and humility and a spirit of collaboration with those people, and I can say, hey, I want to learn from you. Tell me how your job works. Like, tell me your little piece of the puzzle because nobody has the full puzzle. And hey, tell me if I'm screwing up or if I'm, if you think I'm wrong or if you're worried about something because I might be and I really want to, what, you know, like, we all are trying to do this good thing together. You know, if I can just do that every day, things will be better. And I really believe that. I think if we all show up and you know, if we run a resuscitation, every resuscitation like that with our little team, or if we, you know, do a team huddle before our shift or the middle of our shift, or we run a debrief or something, you know, those little moments of explicit communication or reflexivity where we're saying, you know, what is our overarching goal? What are our values? How do we talk to each other? What is going on here? Let's learn. If we can do those little moments, I think those can grow. And I think that's a really powerful place. And there's there, you know, there's science to back that up. You know, if we look at a tree or we look at lungs, like that's a fractal pattern that's just repeated over and over and over again to create this really magical living organism. And the emergency department, it is a magical living organism and it can thrive if we can invest in those little areas that we can control. And that really is the link between the individual factors, what you think in your mind as you go into your shift and what you plan to do, the team factors in terms of your local 
environment, and then the larger structural patterns of culture that govern how we perform in emergencies, right? So that's yeah. our charge um, as we as we wrap up this episode, right, is really to come to think about the best you can bring to bear in these crises from yourself, how to organize your team, and then how to create those ripples through the culture of your environment. Yeah. I think a lot about how are we telling ourselves the story of what's happening right now? Mm -hmm. And those stories are really important. You know, fundamentally, when we're talking about debriefs or huddles or any of these things or, you know, um, you know, bedside recaps, how are we telling ourselves a story of what's happening? If we can tell ourselves a story that integrates some ideas around complexity, we're going to get a lot farther together. I love it. Thank you, Chen, so much for coming on the podcast and talking about all of this, like, Thanks total, for having total me. joy. It's a fun nerd fest. <laughs> I love talking nerdy complexity theory and trying to make it apply to real life. It's good stuff. Awesome. Thank Thanks you. Again. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.